This is Hal Hester, lead pastor of Vine Life, and this is our podcast, The Empowered Word. I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope this message inspires you, builds your faith, and gives you perspective on what God is doing in your life. Please enjoy the message. Good morning. Good to see everyone this morning. Hope that you are having a great week, great weekend. Hey, it's the holiday weekend. You know, I'm, I'm sure everybody's getting excited. You've probably got a barbecue. You've probably got a party to go to. If you don't, man, you know, like uh, uh, make some time to connect with somebody. Make sure that you uh, enjoy some time with others in celebrating uh, just the freedom that we enjoy. For one, we're just able to gather here this morning uh, and with clear conscience and uh, uh, aware that we have the freedom to be able to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Amen? Well, as you can see, uh, we have been uh, busy at work, uh, you know, over here. Uh, you know, I know the uh, plastic's not... Yeah, somebody actually said, I think the wall looks better with the plastic. I, I wasn't sure how to take that, but anyhow... Um, we're, uh, we're making headway. As you know, next week we're going to be uh, tearing into that side of the room and so uh, uh, eliminating those four rooms over there. So uh, if you'd like to be a part of that, as you see those uh, notifications come out, please uh, join us. We'd love to have you be a part of that exciting adventure. Well, today... Uh, you know, I'm just noticing uh, just a little background noise. If you hear a little background noise, uh, we had a situation with the kids' ministry. We had to put them in the room behind us uh, instead of being in their usual uh, spot. And so the little bleed-over noise, uh, encourage you just to just tune that out this morning. It's not that big of a deal. If I can tune it out, you can. All right, deal? All right. Well, we are continuing here in the Gospel of John, talking about eternal life. And, uh, you know, as I've said each week from the beginning, uh, throughout the Gospel of John, the word for life that is employed uh, repeatedly is either sozo or zoe, communicating the idea not of biological life, of bios, uh, but instead the idea of the transcendent experience of life, that the presence of God working in and through us, and through that, that we would not only uh, experience eternal life, but then we would be uh, persons who give off eternal life, that we would share eternal life, that we would welcome people into eternal life, uh, that people would have the encounter of the abundant or the eternal life through us uh, because of the way that the gospel has worked in us and through us. So the idea being primarily that not just us getting into heaven, but the idea of that heaven getting into us and that it working through us would draw others to this heavenly place. Today we are continuing our study on that very rather long narrative. We've been in it for a few weeks now. Uh, we started off with the feeding of the 5,000, then Jesus walking on the water. Last week we looked at Jesus as the bread of life. Today we're going to be looking at the Feast of Booths, and then we'll still be you know, continuing with this discourse as we wrap up next week. But all of these things are kind of compiling together putting together the pieces, the picture, to give us a big, full overview. So if you haven't been reading John 6 and 7, let me encourage you to do so even before next Sunday to prepare your mind for that last uh, message in this uh, part of the uh, discourse. Uh, I have heard from a few of you say, yes, you know what, I've been reading, uh, doing it, and I've discovered things I didn't know about John 6 and 7. Uh, that was very encouraging to hear this morning. Can't tell you how much I appreciate that. But we're going to jump in here. Uh, John chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. If you're using a phone or tablet, please set that to silent for the sake of those around you. I'm going to read from the English Standard Version, uh, but please follow along in whatever translation you have, the one in your lap. Always my favorite. Let's take a look. John 7, 1, and we read these words. And after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works you were doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world." For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus said to, him, said to them, 
My time is not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going to this feast, for my time is not fully come. And after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, He's a good man. Others said, No, he's leading the people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has, this man has learning when he's never studied? Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If, anyone will, uh, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. He is, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that that is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Why are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with, what, with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man is from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he's from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I've come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he has sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Blessed be the reading of God's holy word. So I think it's important to be very clear here about the tension in time and history uh, that we are reading about right here. Jesus flesh and blood brothers, Jude and James, later will be the authors of the letters that bear their name. Clearly, they eventually put their faith in Jesus. However, here in chapter 7, there in verse 5, they are characterized as unbelievers. Uh, and part of the reason I think that's important, you know, first of all, let me just say, not my words, the apostles' words, right? Okay, you know, just, just to be clear, I'm not calling them unbelievers. But John, the apostle John, identifies them at that moment as ones who do not believe in Jesus. Now, it's not because uh, of a lack of signs and wonders. Uh, I'm not sure all what's going on. Uh, of course, we can assume maybe some kind of sibling rivalry is entering into this. I don't know what it's like to grow up as the little brother of Jesus. You know, mom, you just think everything he does is perfect. I, you know, I don't know. You know? And uh, I, I can imagine that that could be uh, some interesting tensions growing up. You know, he never gets in trouble, you know. Um, well, although you and I can speculate about these things, what we do know is just as John says it, at that moment, they were not following Jesus. 
But we do know that they later you know, will follow him, that James will actually uh, be the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem, even after the dysphoria makes their way. When he writes the letter, he's writing to those who are dispersed among the nations, to those Jews, to those believers in Christ who are dispersed among the nations who have left Jerusalem and gone to the four corners of the earth. He will write to them. That's what he's referring to when we use the term dysphoria, simply anyone who's been dispersed among the nations in a different way. Uh, we not only use that in terms of the Jewish people, but any group of people that have been largely displaced from their homeland. And so, in this case, uh, James writes to the dysphoria. Jude will write a very short letter that many, concerning many of the same type of items, situations, etc. But uh, nonetheless, here we are at this moment, and, um, and the response of Jesus is kind of harsh. You know, to be honest, uh, I don't know, again, all that plays into it. And, of course, I don't know the tone with which he says it. But um, here's what we do know. They are provoking Jesus just like Satan provoked Jesus when he was 40 days in the wilderness. Well, if you're going to be a somebody like Here's how you should do it, right? You should do things in a big, grandiose way so that you can be seen. Anybody who wants to be well-known, anybody who wants to be uh, a superstar, a rock star, if you will, in the modern-day lingo, you know, uh, would go and be seen by everybody, do the signs and wonders, let everybody see just who you are so that they can all believe. If you'll remember, that's the same thing that Satan, as he took Jesus to the Temple Mount. Go ahead, jump off, let him see who you are. The angels will catch you. Go ahead, do these things. Turn these things, to, you know, these stones to Do all of these things so that everyone will know who you are. Because the one thing that Satan didn't want was for Jesus to go to the cross. Keep that in mind. Oftentimes, we talk about it as if Satan were trying to lure Jesus to the cross or that he was the one who was putting Jesus on the cross. Let's be really clear from Old Testament on. It's clear that this is the plan of God going back through the prophet Isaiah and that Satan does everything he can to keep Jesus from going to the cross including sowing things into his friends and family. Oh, you don't want to do that. May it never be. And Jesus' response to Peter is, get behind me, Satan. Because the plan of Satan was that Jesus would not go to the cross. He knew what that would do. And that's not what he wanted. He didn't want Jesus to get to the cross. And in this moment, his brothers are giving him the same advice as Satan. Here, put on a big show. Everybody will believe in you then. And Jesus' response to them is very telling in it and because he says, listen, you can go there because you're of the world. The world's deeds are evil and that's why the world hates me. Translation, he just called his brothers evil. Could be maybe some of the family tensions, I don't know, you know. I don't know, last time somebody called you evil, were you like, you know, like all excited to go hang out with them? Yeah. Anyone? No, not really? Okay. So Jesus' accusation against them is very pointed. You can go to Jerusalem because you're just like them. Your works are evil. They do not persecute you. Even as their accusation is, Jesus, you just want to be a rock star. And look, if you want to do that, like just, you know, come on, show us all what you're all about. Put on a big display, and we'll all believe also. Very tense moment in that. Last time when we covered this point, when we were in the Gospel of Mark, I actually, we had some folks here who were visiting with family and stuff like that, and uh, it was talking about Mary and, the, and his brothers coming to gather him, and that, you know, his response uh, was 
pretty terse and said, and basically the accusation was that they didn't believe in Jesus. Uh, and so, uh, you know, e- even Mary was questioning what Jesus was doing. And, and the implication is they were worried about his mental health. Like, I, we think he's gone a little off his rocker. You know, we need, we're here to collect him, you know, take him home. He needs a little rest, obviously, in the face of all of this. Um, and so someone thought I was trying to say that, you know, that Mary and, and all of them didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, again, let me make the point. It's the text that's saying at this moment that they're not believers. That changes. It clearly changes. But at that moment, what it should be telling you and I is that this issue of them looking for this messianic figure who was a warrior king and would defeat Rome was permeating even Jesus' own family. And that how, in the midst of that, they couldn't see or hear what Jesus was actually saying. So even Peter, who will confess that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, by the Spirit of God, remember Jesus will say to him, Mark chapter 8 is that turning point, uh, uh, you know, uh, there in which he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus' response is, Blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Yet, it will be later on in chapter 8 and into chapter 9 that where we watch him turn around and just kind of you know, stick his foot in his mouth and say all kinds of blunderous things, right? In which he will tell Jesus, no, you're not going to the cross. He will tell Jesus, you, this is not the way it's supposed to happen, right? Because in his flesh, he doesn't want those things to happen. I mean, if you think about it for just a moment, I mean, if you have a personal relationship with someone, and they tell you that they're going to die, nothing in you wants to hear that, right? I mean, you just kind of identify with Peter for a moment, you know. Not too much, you know, because, you, you know, but, but, but try to identify with that situation in the moment. Identify with this situation. They, just none of this. They're like going, you know, my brother, he's, you know, always so perfect, and now he's like, you know, preaching at all of us, you know, and... There's a lot of tension, but they cannot see who he is because their predisposed ideas, their theology, their sociology, and their politics are all in the way. I always keep that in mind for myself. Hello? Anyone? I've got to think through those things because, you know, I mean, uh, uh, especially like, right, we're, 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 we're like in the holiday where we're celebrating uh, this weekend our, uh, our country, our independence, our freedoms, our liberties. Like, I don't want to take away anything from that. I, I'm really grateful for those things. Anyone here a little grateful? Hello? Okay. All right. Well, and so... Uh, you know, as, we, as we're celebrating those things this weekend, it's, I think, even more pointed, right? We, just, we have to keep perspective that we make sure that we hear Jesus and not, like, let our other thoughts and feelings keep us from hearing Jesus. So here they are in this situation, and, uh, and, and listen... That problem occurs over and over again throughout history. It happened in the Old Testament among God's people uh, where, you know, like Joshua is, uh, comes upon a man he didn't realize was an angel of the Lord, and he says to him, whose side are you on, our side or their side? And the angel responds, neither. I'm on the side of the Lord God Almighty. I think that's an important wake-up call for all of us, right? We just want to make sure we're on the right side. Okay, so verse 1, Jesus is still in Galilee. His brothers are trying to get him to put on a big show in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths, also known as Sukkot. Um, Now, this year, uh, or Sukkot, depending on who you ask, depends on my my Hebrew teacher, one, you know, 
do you do the German pronunciation? Do you do the modern Hebrew pronunciation? Good question. This year, for 2023, the feast starts September 29th, ends October 7th. So it is a fall harvest celebration that you can read about in detail, Exodus 34, Leviticus 23, and in those passages, it was originally called the Feast of Ingathering. In other words, a time of gathering up the produce, gathering up the things that God has blessed them with. Now, as Jesus' brothers challenge him to go to Jerusalem, he tells them that he's not going. Specifically, he told them it's not his time, aware of what is happening, that they are pressing in on him, seeking to put him to death. Now, the charge that is being lay, uh, laid at his feet is from Deuteronomy chapter 13. So you could just kind of make us a footnote of that, and let me encourage you to go read that at another time. Please don't read it right now because I'll lose you, okay? So, but the point being, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, it talks about the idea of those who are false prophets who lead the people astray, and the death penalty is the only way in which to handle that. In other words, the, the view is, if someone comes to you and they start teaching you and leading the people of God astray, leading them away from the Lord, that the death penalty should be imposed to make sure that nobody else tries to do that. Capital punishment was the solution in that situation. Of course, it also will say something along the lines, uh, in, in, uh, just a little bit further down, about that a, a child who starts leading all of his siblings astray, that you should also do the same thing, because the other ones will learn really quickly. Hello? Mm. 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 Not exactly a popular thing to say in the 21st you know, century, but... The reality is, is the idea is, is that if you stop it, that nobody else will then come along and try to do the same thing. So if there are those who are deceiving and leading God's people astray, then they need to be stopped. Now, as I've said throughout Mark, and now thus far in John, Jesus is trying to disciple the twelve in order to prepare them for his ascension to the Father. He has three years. Now, I know he's the Son of God. Uh, I know that um, uh, he is in control. But I also want you to understand that free will plays a real part in all of these things because they keep reminding us over and over again. He says, it's not my time, and then he often will withdraw himself from crowds. He will walk out of crowds, trying you know, to making sure to escape them so that they cannot do what they want to do in that moment. What you and I ought to hear in that is that although God is firmly in control, he is working around the free will of men, and that men exercise their free will oftentimes against the will of the Father. Anyone aware that there are people, including maybe yourself, who have done things other than the will of the Father? Likewise, one of the things that we're going to realize in this text here is that doesn't mean that they're doing the will of Satan either. Hello? We are not dualists that believe that Satan is equal in power and authority with God. He is a created being. He is not on the same standing, not on the same level. He is not omnipresent. Oftentimes, the greatest sins of men have nothing to do with the work of Satan. We are plenty of darkness all in ourselves. We don't need help. That's an important distinction in Christianity that, we, that everything's not Satan's fault. That's Persian dualism. It's pagan. It's not Christian. And so it's important for us to remember in this that oftentimes some of the most destructive things that happen aren't the will of Satan. Even he fears to tread some places that we as human beings don't seem to mind. I will point out that Jesus would not have been crucified if Satan had had his way. 
So in the midst of the Father having His will, like that means that human beings, like we're exercising their free will in crucifying Jesus, the Father just allowed it. But even Satan couldn't stop them. That ought to give us a pause. As we think about all the events in world history and some of those darkest events may just be the darkness of humanity. And if that doesn't make you pause for a moment, I don't know what else would. Like that, that reminds me when I look in the mirror and I see darkness in my own heart and my own soul, that that darkness is real, it's not imagined. And that I really do need the restraint of the Holy Spirit. Hello? I know that's really uncomfortable subject matter and probably you've not thought about that before. But it really is important. So here, an early exit is Jesus is preparing the disciples, right? And, and all this is going on and he's spending time with them. And he's, he, he spends the vast majority of his time actually alone with the disciples. And then even the things he does in terms of public ministry, he uses those as teaching moments, uh, uh, crucial teaching moments for the disciples. He's preparing them. But we watch even on the day that Jesus is crucified that what do they do? They all scatter. It's like being in Florida and turning on the light. Everybody's scattered. And we watch over the next 40 days as Jesus brings them to a place of healing and to wholeness and wraps up their preparation. We watch on day 50 as Peter stands up and leads in a way that he didn't lead the night that Jesus was crucified. When you think about all, all that, that, those circumstances, like that three years was important. And Jesus is guarding it. He's withdrawing at times. He's going silent sometimes. He's disappearing from people at times. Uh, spending a lot of time in prayer. When he's not with the disciples, he's usually off on his own praying, making sure that he knows next steps. So in this situation, Jesus says, it's not my time yet. Uh, He's gathered with other people. But then when he has some time alone, apparently the Father makes it clear, I do want you to go up. I I believe wholeheartedly that when he said that he wasn't deceiving them, there's no deception in him, he just at that moment had not heard from the Father, go. But then... A few days later, he's had some time alone, it says, and uh, he feels like he's supposed to go. Now, in that situation, when you're talking about the Feast of Booths, uh, if you're not familiar with that fest, uh, you know, part of what they did was that they would come into Jerusalem and they would build little booths here and there, like little uh, structures uh, to uh, hang out in, and it was to remind them of when they were in the wilderness and that God was providing for them, and they were like living in tents. So that's the idea, you know, just kind of set up a temporary structure, set up your tent, set up a little structure and and be there. And so uh, in that case, in Jerusalem, because of the temple, uh, people would have just all throughout the city been building little structures, setting up tents and things like that. Uh, And so you can imagine the chaos that would be going on inside the city, just outside the city. If you were, you know, didn't, weren't fortunate enough to get inside the city, inside the walled gates uh, for your protection, you might have been outside in the countryside there. Uh, but can you imagine the chaos level of just all of that going on? Little tents here and everywhere. And, and so I assume that that's how Jesus was able to come into the city and nobody really noticed him. There's so much chaos going on uh, ensuing. It'd probably be pretty easy to make your way through a crowd and not be detected uh, by leadership, especially that he was by himself and not surrounded by his disciples. There's no entourage for anybody to notice. Um, and uh, 
But he comes into the city and he's quietly participating, uh, watching, and, uh, and everybody misses him. You know, they're, they're, they're talking all about him, but somehow they have no idea that he's there. Your translation might say he came in secret instead of in private. Uh, ESV is the only one that uses the word private. All the others say secret. But during that feast and all these things going on, um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're coming up on this festival and the festival is to remind them about how God provided for them in the wilderness. So piece all these things together with me, if you will. We started in chapter 6 with them feeding the 5,000. And there are references made over and over again to Moses and the feeding uh, with the manna in the wilderness, right? And then we have him... Um, also in the case of uh, the bread of life, and he's explaining that how that he is the, the, bread, the manna from heaven. Again, the reference is there's one in your midst who is greater than Moses, and he is the one who is the bread of life. He brings all the provision and all of that. And so now, here we are, and we're in this next part of it, and we're at the Feast of Booths, and the Feast of Booths, although it's often referred to as the Harvest Festival, that's true, it happened at harvest time. I want you to think that when they were in the wilderness, there was no harvest, right? If you're roaming about and you're not staying and planting, there's no harvest. God provided for them in the midst of their being in those tents, in the midst of them being in temporary structures, and the celebration, uh, why uh, you know, they were actually celebrating it, is to proclaim that God is our provider in all things. We did not provide for ourselves. He's the provider. They're reminding themselves then year by year in the harvest, you did not provide for yourself. God provided for you because He blessed your crops. He brought these things. He, worked, he blessed the work of your hands. But ultimately is that constant reminder that He is the provider. It's important, I think, just sometimes even for us to remind ourselves of that. Hello? You know, that, like it's easy to say that God is our provider in just kind of an offhand kind of way, but then sometimes we think and act as if we have provided for ourselves. Hello? Anybody ever struggle with that? I mean, don't raise your hand or anything, but, uh, you know, there is that reality that sometimes we think in terms of our own provision, until we lose the job or the stock market crashes, in which point we're like blaming God. Anybody, anybody struggle? Anybody, anybody, especially in retirement, right? Hello? And so in the midst of this, here they are, and, and do you see how these pieces are coming together? He is the one who fed them in the wilderness. He's the one who fed them again in the wilderness, the 5,000. He is the one who is the bread of life. The message is just being pounded into our skulls as we're reading. Hopefully, we're getting a clue, and now he's at the Feast of Booths, and what you and I are supposed to be getting out of this is they're coming to celebrate him who is the provision of all things, suddenly Jesus stands up on the last day of the festival. Now, what did they do on the last day of the festival? I'm glad you asked. What they would do on the last day of the festival is they would take large amounts of wine to symbolize the harvest, and they would take water to symbolize the whole idea of the water that was provided for them in the midst of the bitter waters, the waters that came from the rocks and all of these kinds of things. And so it, these pouring out the wine and the water in the temple was their way of saying, look, God is the one who has provided everything we have. He's the one who provided for us in the wilderness. He's the one who provides for us in this place. He is our provision. And so the last day, that's what they would do. They would take and they would go into the temple and they would do this huge uh, display of pouring out wine and water to symbolize that God was faithful in providing for them over the last year. Great! makes all kinds of sense in the midst of it because then Jesus stands up in the midst of it and he says what? 
I am the living water. I'm the one whom you find your, your satisfaction in. I'm the one who provides for you. And so this refrain again and again, you keep, you know, like he keeps talking about Moses. They keep referencing Moses and, and judging him on the basis of what Moses said or supposedly said or didn't say or whatever else. And he is trying repeatedly through the words of Moses through their understanding of the law, that this is not just about provision in the fall harvest, but God's continual provision, beginning with that fold, you know, those 40 years, but that it's continued all the way through. And now, here I am to declare to you that I not only will provide for you in all of your physical needs, but yes, also eternal life. I'm the provision of all of these things, and then he kind of, you know, and I'm paraphrasing this, you keep telling me what Moses said, and then what you actually tell me is your traditions. And thus you ignore exactly what Moses actually said. You keep saying you're quoting the Bible, but you're actually quoting yourselves. You ever had that experience where someone's telling you things are in the Bible and, you know, yeah, okay. He says, but if you actually knew what Moses said, then you would listen to me. And he goes into this whole thing about their hypocrisy about the Sabbath. Now, why in the midst of this festival is he bringing up the Sabbath? Well, there are two things in the traditions that are key in the minds of every Jew. One of them is circumcision, and the other one's the Sabbath. It is kind of the line in the sand. In their minds and in the traditions, it would indicate to you that as long as you were circumcised and you kept the Sabbath, that everything was great, and you could just basically kind of ignore everything else. Not literally, but there was an attitude that permeates everything in the traditions that would give you the impression that, look, just like these are the line in the sand because they distinguish us from everyone else. What we know from history is that the Jews were viewed suspect as being extremely lazy because they took one day a week off. What would they think of Americans, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> But it's true that, like, if you look throughout history, that that was the accusation continually. One of the biggest reasons the Jews were hated was because of the Sabbath. How dare you take a day off? You see that even developing in our society now, that, like, even though we want a weekend off, right, we want two days off on the weekend, then we look at the service industry, how dare you close your chicken sandwich place on Sunday. Just for instance, maybe, you know. How dare you close the bank all weekend? How dare you... See, even though it's, we like our weekends, we want everything to be convenient to us, available to us. We don't like it when... Our beer is not available on Sunday, and hence we did away with the blue laws. And, and we don't like it when, you know, uh, the grocery store, when we can't buy certain clothing items or uh, stereos or whatever else on Sunday, we do away with those. And we just, as a whole, as a society, the truth is, we want time off for ourselves, but we want everybody else to work at our convenience. And so nothing's really changed. The whole world at one time looked at the Jews and said, well, you bunch of lazy, good-for-nothings, you and your God, you've got to have off Sunday. Know any Christians who can't get off on Sunday? I've got a couple of kids that will tell you about it. They can even tell the, the owner who's supposed to be a friend of mine, my dad's a pastor, I need to be off on Sundays, and if I want, they want a job, they're going to work Sundays. See, there's not much respect for that anymore. 
Jesus goes after them on their hypocrisy about the Sabbath by going after their other favorite thing, circumcision. You keep the law by circumcising baby boys, that is, cutting off their foreskin on the Sabbath, but you refuse to accept a person being made whole on the Sabbath. He's literally playing those things against one another. You will cut off foreskin, but you will not allow somebody to be whole. He's pointing out the hypocrisy of that, and he says, look, the problem is not God's word. The problem is your interpretation. The problem is your interpretation. But they won't even address the glaring hypocrisy. Instead, the moment that Jesus brings that up, they change the subject. We call it gaslighting. It is the height of toxic leadership. Whenever you latch on to a comment that has nothing, that's indirectly tied to the thing that you've been talking about, and, and, and so they, you know, they latch on to his comment, who's trying to kill you? Oh, that's the most ridiculous thing. Now, here's the thing, here's the clue that you know. You jump down a few verses, and what does the crowd say? Isn't this the guy that they're trying to what? This is the guy they're trying to kill. How is it that he's standing up there on the final day of the festival, on the day that they're pouring out the water to symbolize God's provision, and he can stand up there and say, I am the living waters. I am the hope. I am your provision. I provide for you not only the things that you eat, but I am your hope for eternal life. And they go, well, if this guy is not the real deal, I mean, he's been doing signs and wonders like we would expect him to do. Uh, He's teaching in such a way that it's clear that he's been taught by someone and he didn't ever go to school, so is not the Lord speaking through him? And the fact is that we're watching the religious leaders and they won't deal with him and they're talking in, in hushed tones. We all know what's really going on. Remember, gossip travels much faster than real news, right? The discussion's out there and they know it. no matter how much they try to deny it. So what do they do? They gaslight the whole subject. Now, the crowd knows what Deuteronomy 13 teaches, even though they wouldn't have called it Deuteronomy 13. And when Jesus calls them out, they do the ultimate gaslight. You have a demon. That, oh, that's just stupid. Anybody here ever think of a moment in history or time in which someone was doing something and you kind of caught them red-handed and then they like change the subject matter entirely and then talk as if you are a raging idiot, a conspiracy theorist, or uh, you're being difficult, you're the problem. Anyone? 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 Maybe? Maybe? The absolute pinnacle of toxic leadership is denying what you're clearly doing and telling those who catch you that they're demonic. So then we get to that last part, and the the crowd knows, the crowd is saying, isn't this the guy that they want to kill? Isn't this the guy that they're talking about And with regard to Deuteronomy 30? Isn't he the one that they're saying is leading the people astray? And yet, what should we conclude? That maybe... Maybe the truth is that they do know that this guy is the Messiah. And then they debate among themselves. Well, will we know where the Messiah... I thought we wouldn't know where the Messiah is from. You know that, and so what we're talking about is what? Tradition. If they went to the Word, they would know that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. That He comes from Galilee. And that Galilee would be the light to the nations. Even to the Gentiles. I mean... These scriptures are there. They're not just quoted in the New Testament, right? They're, they're directly quoting the Old Testament. There's every reason for them to know, and yet the, tr- the truth is, is that their tradition, their politics, their sociology has all captivated their hearts and minds so much that they can't see Jesus for who He is. They can't see what's happening plainly before them. And even as they're watching the events unfold, they're reinterpreting them in the direction that they want them to go so that it fits their ideology, so it fits their politics, so it fits that's their theology. Even though that's not what God said, and it's not what God was doing. Since that's a warning all throughout the Old Testament, 
and that it's a warning again in the New Testament, probably pretty important for you and I to always keep that in mind, right? And they rightly conclude it must be because deep down inside they're afraid he really is the Messiah. And that really is the point. You see, what you and I are watching unfold, we saw it in the Gospel of Mark, we're now seeing it in the Gospel of John, the two of the most divergent Gospels in terms of just like the, the, the things that they cover, right? The, the least amount of material overlapping between the two accounts. And what we see over and over again is that the religious leaders are so full of themselves that they're not actually any different than Herod the Great. Remember who Herod the Great is? I know there's lots of Herods. Let me remind you, Herod the Great is the one who tried to murder the Messiah in infancy. When he found out that he was to have been born in Bethlehem and the time in which the star appeared, he called for the murder of all the children in Bethlehem under the age of two so he could protect his political position without any fear of the wrath of God. When people will protect what they want, what they have, without any fear of God, even when they're supposed to be representing the Messiah themselves, even when they're the religious leaders that are supposed to be protecting people, And here in this text, their willingness to kill Jesus is in the midst of even while they think he is most likely actually the Messiah, proving that they're no different than Herod, making the point that you and I need to be wholly aware when people are all about holding on to power. The picture that John paints for us is this, that Yahweh has come in Jesus and His provision is not limited to bread and water. Rather, He's the source of all things and in Him we find all we need not only in this life but in the life to come. And moreover, He has come to bring eternal life into our space, into the life that we now have, that we have access to the Father through Jesus because He has provided for us, including the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. And there's this expectation that you and I turn to Him and that we surrender ourselves to Him because He is trustworthy, that He is willing, and He puts Himself in harm's way even to the point of shedding His own blood and giving His own life. That is the God that you and I can depend on, not the man who defends first their own selves, their own position, their own power, their own means. It's really important that we remember who's the real Messiah. Well, with that said, I'm definitely out of time, so we need to wrap up right here. We will jump into it again next week, picking up there. But listen, as we enter into this weekend, living in a land of great liberty and prosperity, let us be reminded that not by our own hand, not by our own strength, but by the hand of God comes our, not only our, uh, all of our needs being met, but true liberty. I hope you'll join us for the conclusion. Let's stand together. Jesus, our provision, not just in the flesh, 
not just in the spirit, but in all things, the whole person, body, soul, and spirit, Jesus is it. You know, we often speak of God as our provision, meaning that he gives us what we need, but truth be told, it's easy in this world to see ourselves, our hard work, our productivity as the source of our provision. It's easy to see the Constitution as the protector of our rights and, and all, and I, I'm grateful for our Constitution. Please don't mishear me, but let us never forget that the resources of this world and our abilities are all provided by the Creator who has given them to us, the provision that is us, that is ours, comes to the just and the unjust, the rain, the sun, they are all avail they're available to all. And the only real difference between the just and the unjust is whether or not we recognize who the source of all these things is and that we give him the honor that is due his name. So today, as we prepare to go and celebrate the independence of our nation, the freedom and all of these things that we hold dear, I pray that throughout this week, as you reflect on those things, that you give Him the due place in your heart, your mind, your thoughts, your intentions, your actions, your attitudes, because He's worthy. Father, we thank You for Your Son, the Lord Jesus, and we thank You that we do live in a land of great prosperity and liberty. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would be a people of great courage and that we would use these opportunities to share the gospel, the good news, the hope of eternal life, that we would not be afraid of meeting the rude and the self-interested, that we would not be afraid of being spoken to unkindly or something like that, but that we would remember the saints of God around the world who proclaim this message of hope, of liberty, of freedom, of healing, of eternal life in the face of greater persecution than we, will, than we have ever known, uh, in face of greater circumstances, difficulty, and with less than any of us in this room has ever known. Father, may we be a people who honors you with the great gifts that we have been given as a nation and as a people. May we be bold, fearless, courageous. May we love the lost more than we love ourselves in the hope of receiving a reward that is greater than anything that we might gain in this life, in eternity. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, so prayer team members, go ahead and come on up. If you have any need uh, today, whether that might be in something in keeping with the theme of what we've talked about this morning, or it could be uh, something else entirely in terms of your health, uh, your well-being, uh, your care for others, let me encourage you to come get some prayer. God bless you. We'll see you next week, Lord willing. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. If you did, there's two things you could do for me. First, subscribe to our channel. That way, the most recent podcast will always be in your feed, ready when you are. And secondly, if this ministry has impacted you, would you help us to continue to reach others by clicking on the link in the description to give now. Until next time, thank you so much for listening to the empowered word.